Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm your host, Michael Morales. On today's program, we'll be talking to T. Desmond Alexander about his recent commentary on Exodus that's in the Teach the Text series put out by Baker Books in 2016. Desmond Alexander is Senior Lecturer in Biblical Studies and Director of Postgraduate Studies at Union Theological College in Belfast, Ireland. Among his many contributions, he is the co-editor of the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, That's published by IVP Academic in 2000, and he's the author of From Paradise to the Promised Land, an introduction to the Pentateuch, published by Baker Academic. It's already now in its third edition. As one who has gleaned much from Alexander's significant contribution personally, I'm especially glad to have him with us today. Desmond, welcome to the show. Michael, it's a pleasure to be with you. Why don't we begin, Desi, by having you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, uh, where you grew up maybe a word on your family okay i grew up uh, and you'll probably gather from my accent uh, in the north of ireland i um, was born into a a family um, a presbyterian family Um, i'm the the eldest of three boys but um, uh, my mother is the one who really brought us up because my father died when i was six and uh, she uh, is the one who's nurtured me uh, for many years, and and, uh, and she continues uh, to take care of me in, in all sorts of ways. She's a, a wise woman. Um, I ended up uh, going to university uh, with the intention of doing a degree in theology in order to become a Presbyterian minister. But uh, through various circumstances, I ended up doing an arts degree in Semitic studies And that led on to doing a PhD uh, with a a concentration on uh, Genesis. I I did my PhD on the Abraham narrative in Genesis. And uh, that then uh, led through, again, strange circumstances to me becoming a lecturer in Semitic studies in Belfast. Um, I I lectured in Queen's University from 1980 through to um, 1999. And then for a number of years, I was director of Christian training with the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And then in 2009, I was invited by the church to become a lecturer in the Theological College here in Belfast. And you're married, yes? I'm, I'm married to Anne, and I have um, two grown-up uh, children. Uh, Jane is the eldest, and uh, David is a a year or so uh, younger. Um, they're both getting married in the next uh, four months, so uh, wow. life is busy at the present time with wedding preparations. Congratulations. And you know, since you live in Ireland, I need to keep asking you periodically, have you bumped into Bono yet? <laughs> uh, I haven't personally, but uh, um, the, the church I go to has a minister who's a, who's a very keen fan of you too. So uh, we, we constantly hear about Bono. 
Okay, well, tell us about the Teach the Text series. What, what makes this commentary different from the others? I, I suppose what makes it different and, and why I was particularly keen um, to take on writing on Exodus is the fact that it's, it's a comedy series that's designed to help uh, pastors, um, teachers uh, communicate what the book of Exodus has to say. Uh, and so the way in which the commentary is structured is designed somewhat differently um, in, in some ways from most other commentary series. Um, you, you, you end up um, breaking the text up into sections that uh, you hope will enable someone else uh, to work their way consecutively through the text of Exodus in order to uh, communicate what the book is, uh, what the book has to say. Um, so, so I suppose that's what, um, in large measure, I think makes it somewhat different. So the, the the chapters are perhaps a little bit uneven. And uh, for me, one of the challenges in particular with the book of Exodus is that it consists of uh, quite different types of material. And it's not necessarily, uh, from that point of view, an easy book uh, to actually um, teach uh, to, to other people. Mm-hmm. Would you give our audience uh, a summary of the storyline of, of Exodus and then also maybe a word on its central importance, not only in Judaism, but also in the Christian tradition? Okay. Well, m- most people are probably very ob- very aware that Exodus itself begins with the, the scene of the Israelites being enslaved uh, by a pharaoh in Egypt uh, where they're expected to um, uh, set about building store cities for pharaoh. And you then have uh, this uh, situation where Moses is called by God uh, to bring about the deliverance of the Israelites uh, from slavery in Egypt. And that part of the story is probably largely familiar to folks, uh, along with the uh, what we uh, have come to know as the uh, the ten plagues. Uh, uh, you have God demonstrating His power both to the Israelites and to the Egyptians, and bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. And as part of that process of deliverance. Um, we have the very special event, the the Passover taking place. Um, The the Israelites are then uh, rescued from an advancing uh, chariot force that Pharaoh sends against them as they're fleeing from the country. Uh, They pass through what's often referred to as the the Red Sea, but it might possibly also be thought of as the Lake of Reeds. And then uh, they travel through the wilderness and come to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they encounter uh, God. Uh, It was at Mount Sinai that God had called Moses and he brings Moses back to this location. And the mountain is exceptionally important within the storyline of of Exodus. Uh, They uh, come to the mountain and at Mount Sinai, the Israelites are basically invited by God to enter into a covenant relationship with him, a special relationship that will set them apart as his people. Uh, that special relationship entails obligations. 
that the Israelites must undertake. And we can think of, uh, in particular, what we know of as the Ten Commandments, being those um, being the principal obligations of the covenant. And then, in a sense, to cement this relationship and to um, draw out uh, the significance of it, the Israelites are asked to uh, to build a, a special tent that will become God's dwelling place uh, among the people. And so, the, the storyline of Exodus, in a sense, uh, is all about movement. It's about movement from Egypt to Mount Sinai. It's about uh, a movement that involves the Israelites moving from being slaves to Pharaoh to being, as uh, as it's put in Exodus 19, uh, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Uh, it, it's a movement that involves God appearing initially to be distant, but by the end of Exodus, God comes to dwell among the people and to be close to them. And so there's a lot going on within the book. And the book itself then is actually a part of a much larger narrative, which will uh, lead on in the Old Testament to um, God and the Israelites moving from Mount Sinai into the promised land and uh, ultimately uh, Jerusalem or Mount Zion, becomes the location where God and the Israelites will live together. And that's significant when you go back to the book of Exodus, because uh, Exodus presupposes that they are on a journey, uh, that their ultimate goal is that the Israelites will live with God on his holy mountain. And interestingly, Exodus brings them to a holy mountain before they actually uh, reach the promised land. And so there's a, a, a significance in terms of uh, the people coming to a mountain and in actual fact uh, preparations being made so that they can ascend that mountain. So in, in many ways, the book of Exodus um, uh, prepares for and anticipates the Israelites living with God on his holy mountain at Jerusalem. Hmm. Uh, from a Christian perspective, then, the, the, the Exodus story is also, I think, a paradigm of salvation because uh, uh, as, as Christians, we anticipate living uh, on another mountain, ultimately, um, the New Jerusalem, in the city of the New Jerusalem. And there's a sense in which the Passover story, which is at the heart of the, uh, heart of the Exodus story, um, uh, provides us with, I think, an important paradigm for understanding uh, how salvation comes to us through Christ being uh, the Passover sacrifice. Mm. So there's a lot going on in the book of Exodus, uh, uh, certainly plenty to reflect on from a theological point of view. Yes, I want to go back. You mentioned um, what have come to be known as the plagues. Can yes. you give us um, your understanding um, of what's going on there rather than plagues? Yes, we've, we've, we have uh, 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 sort of adapt, uh, adopted this term, the ten plagues. But uh, when you actually explore what uh, the Hebrew text is saying, uh, rarely does it use the equivalent um, for the word plague in, in Hebrew. More often, these events are referred to as signs and wonders. 
And so you have a series of signs that leads up to Passover. In Jewish tradition, they're referred to as the Ten Strikes. And, and I discovered in the process of my research that in actual fact, when the King James translation was made, uh, the word plague in English uh, actually meant a strike or a blow. Um, so uh, that terminology, that term plague, has actually changed meaning over the years. And so um, while I think it's quite fair, quite, quite, um, uh, uh, it, it's fine to speak about the 10 strikes and, and you have that, the imagery is brought out in terms of Moses or Aaron taking the staff of God and in some way symbolically striking Egypt. Mm. Uh, th- that kind of language, I think, is, is quite appropriate. But uh, plagues conveys the wrong uh, idea because uh, we often associate plague with some kind of disease. But uh, for many of the events that take place, that there's actually no disease um, in view. And, and so 10 plagues, I think, uh, doesn't communicate what's going on. And I think theologically then, especially for Christian readers, uh, something is lost because when we come to the New Testament and particularly to John's gospel, we discover that there that you have a series of signs that lead up to Passover. And uh, interestingly, in the Exodus story, you have water being turned into blood you have the death of the firstborn, but but in John's gospel, the signs are all signs of hope. So water is transformed into wine. Uh, you have the raising of Lazarus uh, from the dead. It's a, a kind of a, a reverse of what's there in the Exodus story. But, but I think that they're uh, intimately connected because you have this sense in which signs leads up to, leading up, leads up to Passover. And uh, that ought to be, I think, uh, appreciated. That's good. I hope that makes sense. It does. Thank you. Uh, the Teach the Text series has these various sections called uh, Theological Insights. Uh, you've mentioned the Passover. Could you give us some of the theological insight into uh, the Passover event, uh, what it means, and as you mentioned, uh, the way that the New Testament appropriates it? Okay. Oh. Uh, to my mind, uh, Passover is quite important, but Sadly, I think it's been largely neglected from a theological perspective. So the actual significance of what's happening at Passover has has been missed. Uh, Perhaps putting it very simply, the the Passover consists of a number of elements to a particular ritual. So you have to begin with the offering of a sacrifice. Uh, You then have... Uh, blood from the sacrifice being taken and sprinkled around the door frame of the Israelite homes. And then there are very careful instructions, uh, quite um, particular instructions given in terms of what's to happen to the sacrificial meat. Uh, the Israelites are to uh, eat it. They're, they're not to cook more meat than they need. They're to uh, roast it, not boil it. Um, they're they're not to uh, keep any of the meat. Any meat that's left over from the Passover night is to be burnt. Uh, It's not to be uh, taken with them as they journey onwards. Uh, They're not to break the bones of the Passover animal. 
so so there's certain um, things that um, the people are to do. Exodus itself, or the Passover narrative in Exodus, doesn't provide an explanation uh, uh, in any particular way of what's meant by the ritual or what's happening in the ritual. But it seems to me that you can observe very close parallels between the Passover ritual and the later ritual that has to do with the consecration of the Israelite priests. And uh, if you begin to uh, unpack something of this, I think it becomes obvious that the Passover sacrifice uh, is meant to be a ransom. Uh, It's a payment, a life for a life, so that um, the Israelite firstborn males are not put to death. Um, And again, that in itself within the the Exodus story is somewhat strange or unexpected, because up until this point, with every other sign, God has easily distinguished the Israelites from the Egyptians. But uh, for this final event, the Israelite firstborn males are actually under the same condemnation as the Egyptian firstborn males. And so uh, there is something significant about being delivered from death because of the ransom that is paid. Um, uh, I may come back to this in a a minute with something more. Uh, There's then also the spreading the, the sprinkling of the blood around the door frame of the house and this would seem to have uh, the effect of purifying cleansing those who have gone into the house it's a symbolic uh, way in which this this happens and then finally the eating of the actual passover meat and and also the eating of unleavened bread would appear to have a uh, uh, an an impact in terms of consecrating or making holy those who eat it. Uh, It's it's worth observing that when you come through then to Exodus 13, right at the very beginning of the chapter, God makes the point that the firstborn male Israelites now belong to him. Uh, And I think that conveys something of the idea that they have become holy in a way that others are not holy. Uh, Interestingly, to to develop this a stage further, uh, later when you move to the book of Numbers, you discover that a further substitution takes place and the Levites become a substitute for the firstborn males from all the other tribes. And it's worth observing that the the Levites then end up being, in a sense, the temple or the tabernacle people. They are those who have closest access to God. And so there's a sense in which um, Passover itself um, involves uh, the payment of a ransom. The people are ransomed from death. Uh, I think that they are also in some way then cleansed or uh, purified and then they are consecrated and made holy. And the book of Exodus as a whole wants to make the point that before anyone can can come into the presence of God, they have to become holy. Uh, But uh, not not only at Passover, but also at the sealing of the covenant in chapter 24, and then later with the consecration of the priests, you get a very similar ritual 
taking place that involves a, a sacrifice, the sprinkling of blood to cleanse, and then also the the eating of uh, something that is holy in order that uh, uh, the, worst, the, the people involved should themselves become holy, that they are consecrated through imbibing that which is holy. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I, I think that, um, that theology of Acts of the Passover is then something that actually informs the New Testament understanding of Christ as the Passover sacrifice. So there's a sense in which there is a substitution, a, a, a ransom is paid. Uh, there is that sense of being cleansed, but also there's an emphasis upon the fact that we are made holy uh, through what Christ has done for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we might reflect on how, in actual fact, the, the covenant meal that you have involves uh, eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the sacrifice. And, and I think there's a connection there that's coming through uh, when we think about the Lord's Supper and Passover itself. And it's interesting that in John's Gospel, particularly Jesus is introduced as the Lamb of God, and then there on the cross, specifically told that none of his bones were broken. It seems to be, aside from an allusion to a psalm, that it's uh, bringing the attention to that Passover legislation i I, th- I think so and and underlying all of that is the fact that uh, john wants to emphasize that jesus is the source of life uh, eternal life uh, he he brings life to those who are dead or under the threat of death and that's very much picking up what's at the heart of the passover in the old testament it's a, a deliverance from death and it's a, a giving of life to in particular, to the firstborn. Thank you, Desi. For your uh, chapter on Exodus 13 and 14, which um, in those chapters is where the sea crossing event takes place, uh, the title for your chapter is Soli Deo Gloria, uh, Glory to God Alone. Can you explain how God's glory relates to the sea crossing? Yes, I I think it comes out in particular through the song that the Israelites end up singing, which actually comes in chapter 15. But what struck me as I worked with the text of Exodus, and, and it's, it's true from the beginning of the signs and wonders through to the uh, Red Sea event or the, the Lake of Reeds event, that um, uh, the Israelites themselves take no part in all that happens uh, they are very much, in a sense, observers. Um, it is God himself who uh, sets about uh, defeating uh, Pharaoh and his, his army. So you, you don't have a sense of the Israelites doing anything in order to deliver themselves from the Egyptians. It's uh, from beginning to end. It's, it's very much God uh, who's the one who takes the initiative and who carries everything out. And I think that's what made me feel that uh, through all of this, the, the emphasis is very much on the fact that uh, th- this event will bring glory to God. And uh, that's certainly what's reflected in the celebration that you have, um, the, the words of the, the Israelites in 
chapter 15, want to give emphasis to the majesty and glory and power of God. And I think that's a significant part of what the Exodus story is about. It's about uh, enabling us to know God and to to appreciate uh, his qualities. And uh, we see something of that in the, the uh, deliverance story. And that's interesting because many people just generally, when they think of the Exodus, they think of liberation, setting free from bondage to slavery. We even get, you know, strands of theology, liberation theology. Uh, but you're picking up on, uh, there's also these purpose statements, even for the signs and wonders that through these things, they will know that I am Yahweh. Yes, yes. And, and to my mind, that's exceptionally important because the, the Exodus story is not just a story about uh, slaves being set free, although that that part of the story does draw attention to the compassionate nature of God and his desire for uh, justice and that uh, he, he is a God who is concerned for the well-being of those who are marginalized and oppressed. And, and I would want to emphasize that as part of the Exodus story. But uh, ultimately, the Exodus story is a story about the Israelites coming into a deeper personal knowledge of God himself. And so the, the story takes you from them, from God appearing to be distant uh, to God actually coming into a relationship with the Israelites that enables him to live in their presence. And so it's, I think, exceptionally important not to see the Exodus story ending with uh, deliverance from slavery. Uh, that's maybe a part of the story. But the ultimate goal is actually that people uh, will come to know and serve uh, a new king, uh, a king who is compassionate and gracious and caring, unlike the pharaoh of Egypt. Your last chapter is entitled God in Our Midst and covers Exodus 35 through 40. And here you explain that remarkable event in which uh, the glory of Yahweh fills the tabernacle. But you also remark on how that event foreshadows the goal of history. Can you discuss that for a moment? Sure. One of the striking features of Exodus is that considerable attention is actually given within the book of Exodus to the tabernacle. Uh, not only do you have in detailed instructions regarding the making of it, but then you, you also have uh, those same instructions being almost repeated word for word as we're told about the making of all of the items and uh, of the tent itself and the, and the, uh, the courtyard. And so the, um, the, the tent that Exodus focuses on takes on, I think, uh, a very prominent place within the Exodus story. And uh, there are two, two, two things that come out of it. Uh, one is that the tent itself is described as a dwelling place. And given the materials that are used in the making of it, uh, gold and silver and uh, ornate uh, uh, materials, you have the sense that the one who dwells there is special. The, the tent itself is meant to reflect something of the glory of God. And so, and, and it will be his dwelling place. 
And, and I think that has to be taken uh, very seriously, that he comes to dwell among the people. Uh, but interestingly, the tent is also referred to as a, a tent of meeting. And um, uh, it's quite interesting that in the way in which the, the tabernacle is described, you have uh, you begin by focusing on it as uh, a dwelling place in chapters 25 to 27. And then the terminology switches and you, you begin to think about it as a tent of meeting. And there the emphasis is placed upon the priesthood and the, the clothing of the priests and particularly the consecration of the high priest and and, and the like. And um, that sense of the tent being a tent of meeting, I think, is, is exceptionally important because it seems to me that the Exodus story wants to draw attention to the idea that the high priest... Uh, functions very much like Moses within the story. Um, you, you may recall that in chapter 33, uh, after the golden calf incident has taken place, uh, the, there's a brief reference to the fact that uh, Moses set up a tent of meeting mm -hmm. outside the camp. Now, this would appear to be a temporary tent. Uh, it's quite different from the tabernacle in that God does not go inside this tent. He doesn't dwell within this tent, but Moses goes into it and then uh, God's glory surrounds the tent and uh, God meets with Moses there and uh, the narrative talks about them speaking face to face. Well, uh, Exodus 33 makes the point that it was because of this intimate relationship between God and Moses that Moses was in a position to mediate for the people uh, when they basically break the covenant and uh, you have the breaking of the stone tablets to symbolize the, 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 uh, the fact that the obligations have been broken by the people. Uh, well, um, I, I think the high priest's role uh, going into the tabernacle every day, meeting with God there is very much one of them mediating on behalf of the people so that the covenant relationship between them and God will be sustained, even if the people sin. There's a sense in which Exodus doesn't look beyond the fact that the people are going to continue to in some way be rebellious and disobedient. But God mercifully gives them someone who will be a mediator for them. Uh, and that seems to me to be the, the role of the high priest. So th there's a great deal going on in the final chapters of Exodus in terms of looking to explain the significance of the tent and its function as um, the Israelites move on. Uh, something else that comes across is that I think the tent itself is meant to be viewed as a, a microcosm, uh, a model of the world. And so you have this image of God's glory coming and filling the model uh, with the expectation that one day his glory will fill the entire earth. And so the tabernacle, in a sense, functions as a visual aid reminding the people that God's ultimate, ultimate plan for the earth is that it should be filled with his glory and that uh, he should dwell with people on earth. I hope that makes sense. That is helpful. Thank you.
Now, more generally, were there any surprises in your study of the book of Exodus? Perhaps passages that you used to see one way that now, after studying the book more deeply, you interpret in a different manner? Uh, there's probably quite a few things like that that, that, that uh, jumped out at me. Uh, uh, even from early on in, in Exodus, I suppose, for example, I'm not sure that I had picked up uh, previously how in chapter one, uh, right at the very beginning, when you read about the, the Israelites multiplying and uh, uh, filling, the, uh, filling the land of Egypt, that, um, that that actually takes you back to Genesis 1, uh, uh, there's a tendency probably to think that it's a fulfillment of the promises to the patriarchs that their descendants will become numerous. Uh, but uh, it's it's interesting that right there at the beginning of Exodus, you have this allusion back to Genesis 1, and you get the impression that in actual fact the Israelites in Egypt are fulfilling the creation mandate, uh, that they are being fruitful and multiplying and filling uh, Genesis 1 talks about filling the earth, it's the Hebrew word Eretz, but um, Exodus 1 also uses the word Eretz, but it tends to get translated as land, referring to, referring to Egypt. Uh, so you have this picture of the Israelites, in a sense, fulfilling the creation mandate, and then almost immediately you find that they are oppressed, uh, that they are prevented from doing this. By Pharaoh, and uh, it seems to me that this sets up the imagery that Pharaoh is to be perceived as an anti-God figure. Uh, that uh, his his intention is to prevent to prevent uh, what God intends people to do. Now, now I would argue that in actual fact, God intends people to be uh, to be city builders who will build a city in which God will dwell, but uh, you find Pharaoh then taking the people and making them be making them into city builders, but it's uh, cities that will be for the glory of Pharaoh himself. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you, you get this um, coming into play right at the very beginning. And then building on that, one thing that I hadn't really observed properly before was that um, in actual fact, Exodus draws, I think, an interesting distinction between the concept of redemption and the concept of ransom. Uh, Now, I've already mentioned that I think at Passover, uh, a ransom is paid in order to deliver the firstborn Israelite males from death. But uh, the concept of redemption is also there in Exodus, but it's associated with the Hebrew verb um, uh, ga'al, from, from which we get the concept of the kinsman redeemer. And uh, Exodus draws attention to the idea that God is the one who comes to redeem the Israelites from slavery. So, uh, so you have redemption involving uh, uh, the, the issue of, rede- of um, people who are unjustly enslaved being set free. Uh, so it's redemption from the powers of evil. 
And then you also have alongside it the concept of ransom, a ransom being paid in order to deliver you from the domain of death. And uh, th- those two concepts, I think, tend to get um, run together. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the English translations tend to translate probably both verbs with the idea of redeem. And, uh, the, and so that distinction isn't so obvious. And I think, again, it's, it's, it actually enriches our understanding of the Exodus story if we see the two concepts uh, taking place. So, so the Exodus story involves a, a, a redemption from the powers of evil as well as being ransomed uh, from the domain of death. That's helpful. Thank you. And returning back to that creation language in uh, the opening chapter of Exodus, uh, as you know, uh, Terence Freedheim and, and, and other um, exegetes uh, bring out the creation theology of um, chapters 1 through 15, where you have God representing the blessing and forces of creative life, but um, also in judgment bringing Egypt, in a sense, to this uh, anti-creation, where through the signs and wonders they're sort of self-destructing until the host of Pharaoh ends up Uh, in the abyss of the sea, at the sea crossing, it's almost as if they're reversing the creation account for for Egypt. Is that something that you see or would agree with? I've actually uh, probably moved in the opposite direction in that in in my reading of Exodus, I haven't perceived that um, anti or uh, undoing of creation and then, in some way, a new creation taking place uh, whenever the Israelites um, uh, pass through uh, the sea. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, it hasn't struck me that the author of Exodus has been so keen to emphasize that aspect of, of the narrative. Uh, I, I feel that there is more of an emphasis upon uh, uh, a process of salvation rather than recreation. Uh, that uh, what's what's going on is that, uh, in a sense, people who are estranged from God are being brought so that they can actually ultimately dwell in God's presence. Uh, that's happening within the narrative. But I haven't, in my reading of the text, felt that there's a, that there is a strong an emphasis upon. Uh, creation and or uh, creations are being overturned and then uh, restored uh, sure. through through the Exodus story. It, it um, I, I, I don't quite see it in the way that others see that. And the other view of the the um, again so called plagues, uh, the strikes, is that uh, they are each striking one of the Egyptian gods. Is that something that that you agree with or no? No, I'm afraid <laughs> I, I've, I find that one again difficult because I don't think that you can easily line each of the, the plagues up with a particular god or a particular deity. So I, I'm not convinced that uh, that's what's happening as well. Uh, it's, uh, um, it, it may be that uh, further evidence will persuade me otherwise, but at this stage, I, I haven't been convinced that that's the best way to approach the narrative. Thank you for that. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So grateful that you were on our show today. Before we let you go, can you uh, give us a word about any projects you're working on right now? 
Uh, yes, uh, at the minute, I'm actually just putting the final touches. Uh, it's it's um, really um, working with the, the proof editor um, on another commentary to do with Exodus. Uh, you, you're probably aware of this, but uh, I, I actually... Uh, initially had been invited um, uh, and was working on a much longer commentary on Exodus for the Apollos series that uh, InterVarsity Press w- will hopefully publish. And, and all being well, it's due out uh, next year. And um, the reason I was prepared to do the Teach the Text Exodus uh, volume was because I, I had already hopefully done most of the hard work in uh, grafting with the text uh, and uh, I hoped that uh, the two commentaries would in, in, in many ways be complementary to one another. So the detail that's missing from the Teach the Text volume hopefully will be there in the Apollos volume. So uh, um, that's kind of something that I'm just about finishing off on and, and hopefully uh, will soon uh, put to bed. Uh, the other thing that I'm then in the process of beginning to build up on is writing a commentary on Genesis. Um, And that's for a a new series that Broadman and Holman are bringing out under the uh, title uh, Biblical Theology for Christian Proclamation. So uh, I'm kind of moving backwards when it comes to working on the (laughs) Pentateuch, so uh, moving from Exodus back into Genesis. But uh, that's that's back to something that I've long um, had an interest in. Well, that's very exciting, and we will um, look out for those to uh, come out in the in the future. Thank you again so much for being with us, and thank you for your labors on uh, the Book of Exodus and this commentary. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for having me. I've appreciated chatting with you. All right, we've been talking to T. Desmond Alexander about his Teach the Text commentary on Exodus. We thank you for listening in. Until next time, goodbye.